Lauren, so this week's episode is called The Perils of Peekaboo. It is, uh, it is to my knowledge, uh, this is only a light spoiler, but I believe this is the last time we meet a classic or a redone classic character in like a substantial way, certainly in like a titular way. And so I wanted to ask you, Lauren, now that we've kind of seen the shape of the show, which classic character do you wish Noel and crew had gotten to leave their mark on? It might sound kind of weird, but my honest answer is Looky. I have been looking so hard for Looky all over this show. And aside from the like very obvious Easter egg with his sort of outline in the sky, I don't think he's in here. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what he would look like in this updated universe, right? Because his job was to sort of deliver a very fourth wall breaking moral at the end of the old episodes. We've talked a lot on our podcast about how Princesses of Power just sort of weaves in political issues and, and progressive notes so beautifully and so smoothly that there is no need to kind of recite the moral at the end. So I guess if you were to do that with Lookie, I would, this would never happen. I, I know this would never happen, so this is kind of just a bit I'm doing, but I'd want him to break the fourth wall and talk about modern issues a lot like, like real life ones, a lot like our show does. You know, like an, an episode mm. ends and then all of a sudden Lookie is like, by the way, Black Lives Matter. See you next time. Oh, I get you. And then I could voice Lucky, and you could voice um, Lucky's friend whose name I forgot from that one episode. Lassie. Lassie. Yeah. Yeah. That... It could, yeah. It could, it could literally be us. And we just pop in at the end and we're like, arrest the officers who killed Brianna Taylor. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, Frosto would never say that. But Lucky would. 2020 Lucky would. Can I blow your mind, Lauren? So Lucky does appear in this season. What? Yeah. Did I miss him? So yeah, I don't know. I can't even tell you what episode it's in, but our friend Ryan Ferguson sent me a screen cap of uh, of a scene where there's like a cat woman and a cat man and Lucky fighting off some Horde troopers. Oh, it's it's when Horde Prime is like viewing the Ethereum uprising on his view screen, which of course we don't know anything about that yet but anyway there's a very small cameo of Lucky in the season ah well point the first i'm very disappointed in myself because i have been scouring crowd scenes like in today's perils of peekaboo i was looking all over that party but the stuff that shows up on like horrid primes tv i never would have spotted but point the second i i think my argument still stands because Lucky in my iteration would like put on some cool sunglasses and say trans rights are human rights and he didn't so it's still what I'd like to see <laughs> uh, for me I, I was actually just talking with friend and past guest Tom Foss about the coolest looking Motu characters that never got to do much narratively uh, it came up because we were talking about Sorod who was you might remember the dinosaur looking guy bounty hunter in the live action movie who does like one thing and then evil and kills him but he still had a toy and i was joking with tom i was like i really wish we could have seen what the dreamworks crew would have done with drag store which if you don't know drag store is a horde tr soldier with a wheel in his chest um and a little like zip pull line so you can lay him down on the ground and pull the line and then he like accelerates like a little wind-up car so he's drag a store. <laughs> and I just think that somewhere, somehow these wonderful people would have given him some crazy pathos and or made some play on the fact that the word drag is in his name. Who knows? Either or both. I just want to emphasize for the people at home that like neither of these are jokes. I know I'm sort of giggling as I'm, I'm mentioning these taglines that Lucky could say, but I'm... I'm not kidding. I would love it, mm -hmm. and I think it would be a, a great just message for kids. And I also sincerely think Eric would be way into a tragic backstory uh, of a dragon with a wheel in his chest. Oh, he's not a dragon dr drag store. I mean, I guess he's kind of dragon-faced, but it's from, like, drag race. Anyway, look, the point is... 
I assumed he was a drag racing dragon. I really need to brush up on my classic characters. He never was even in the cartoon is the thing. He just had a toy. So that's fun. My real answer, though, is Mantena, which we're just going to go with whichever writer. Maybe Josie told us that he's just stuck in the trap door forever. R.I.P. Mantena. R.I.P. We miss you. We think about you every day. <laughs> now I'm trapped in the web of love. Trapped in the web of love. Trapped. Hello, everybody. This is She-Ra, Progressive of Power, and my name is Lauren. And my name is Eric. Once again, we're here to talk to you about another episode. We got amazing multiple guests that we're going to talk to in the latter half of this episode. Uh, today is a really interesting one. It's Perils of Peekaboo. Eric, did you expect Double Trouble to come back this season? I, I thought maybe we were done with them, but I was glad to see them come back. Spoiler alert. No, I I mean, spoiler for this episode. I assume people have watched. They're probably not watching the episode as they listen <laughs> Literally to Literally as we're talking. Imagine how difficult that would be. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> four more seconds forward. Four more seconds forward. No, I, I did. I, I would have been surprised if Double Trouble hadn't returned in some capacity. So about two-thirds of the way through the episode, I started to key into how Peekaboo is like... I mean, obviously on stage, but like uses a lot of very dramatic kind of phrasings and figures of speech that reminded me a lot of our uh double crossing friend so it was cool to see double trouble return although as as we're going to talk about in our interview uh in the later half of this episode or it might be i don't know how we're going to divide it yet but somewhere in this interview we mentioned that there's now two classic characters who we don't know if they actually like how they actually exist because we've only seen double trouble impersonate them right and they definitely, the characters in this episode refer to, quote, the real Peekaboo, which I did catch, but I don't know if that means anything. <laughs> I mean, I, I I do assume, which I think this is what Jen and Kiki said, that there's, there is a real Peekaboo, although when uh, the real one disappeared and, and got kind of, you know, body snatched is hard to say. We, we will never know if there's a real flood arena, although Jen and Kiki do weigh in on that uh, at some point in our interview, which is neat. Well, in the meantime, before we get to our awesome talk with our friends, uh, do you have a recap of the episode or would you like me to do it? So, uh, Perils of Peak Blue is another genre bending episode. It's kind of a James Bondy romp. Uh, we have Perfuma, Mermista, Seahawk, and Scorpia infiltrating an, like an underwater, uh, very clandestine meeting of unsavory types uh, to meet Prince Peekaboo, who is a noted showman and uh, teller of universal fortunes. They they think that Peekaboo will help them find their friends. Unfortunately, uh, they find a couple different things underwater. They find a bunch of people who are very mad at Seahawk. Uh, in, in a nice sequence where Seahawk keeps encountering people whose boats he's burned. Um, Scorpia finds that she has to kind of get over her fear of, of being out in public like as a f- kind of forthcoming and like friendly person and ends up singing a nice little song at the end. But most importantly, they find that, yeah, Peekaboo has been replaced by uh, Double Trouble, cannot tell any kind of fortune but does know the unfortunate fact that pretty much everyone at this meeting has been chipped by horde prime and uh and he's coming for our heroes so in the end perfuma and seahawk escape but i guess yeah i guess that's really it huh yeah and double trouble right uh and but mermista and scorpia end up getting chipped and staying behind and and the heroes are are down two of their number so they're That's... down more than two because we flash over to the Whispering Woods and we see some new converts as well. Oh, yeah. That's also true. So, yeah. Uh, this is an, It's another in the tradition of fun genre-bending episodes that end up having a really scary ending. Yes. I do want to talk first about a scene you didn't mention, which is right at the beginning. Adora is trying to transform without her sword... And uh, Catra jumps into her lap. For heaven's sake, Eric, can we check off the Catra Dora bingo square yet? Mm, 
I mean, you were the one who said there has to be some kind of like physical signifier. So I you... think that is a physical signifier. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's up to you. Do you think sitting in someone's lap is a physical signifier? Um, I thought the hand holding um, in an earlier episode and the, the stroking of Catcher's hair in an earlier episode were plenty physical signifiers. Of Great. Like, the well, look, it, this is on you. I'm not the one who's telling you not to mark it. So if we're calling it now, we're calling it. Let's do it. I called it ages ago. If you haven't if you haven't checked off your Catcher Nora uh, bingo square, please do. I think Eric, Eric yes. out here, Eric out here acting like you weren't saying they could still just be friends like one episode ago. Please. I mean, but I'm that's not that doesn't contradict that it, this is on you. See, I'm I'm putting the responsibility on you. I think we have to mention that Catra's got a new do and has really made the most of her time in, in Horde Prime's cult. This is a real Jennifer Aniston move right here. I like this hair a lot. I like that it's sort of edgy and it lets her see her ears um and it's it's i don't know i just i think it's cute also a little a little more masculine i'm just into it i think she looks great yeah i agree it's nice and that's pretty much all we see of like the main cast this episode which is cool because like they dominated the last last one so uh you know or or do they dominate the next one Adora does ask her, are you ready to be home? And I think that's a really weird question to ask Katra, and it's come up a couple of times. But, you know, Katra's only ever really made a home in the Fright Zone. Where does where does Adora think Katra's just going to settle in? With her, duh, because they're obviously romantically involved. I don't know why you haven't seen it for so long. Well, then if they, w- <laughs> God, if they want to say that, like, she's going to be home with Adora, then wouldn't the, like, really cute thing to say be, like, I'm already home, Adora, because I'm with you. I want that line. Let's rewrite yeah, it. Yeah, but, okay, but is that at all in keeping with Catra's character? No, but it's going to go in my fanfic. Okay. I'm sure it's already in about 20 fanfics. Yeah, the the fanfic community is getting out way ahead of us still talking about season five. Speaking of, have you seen some of the, um, like, the kid fan art uh, inspired by Noelle and Molly's live stream? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, man. There's, like, a Harry Potter epilogue-style series of children that are... Not canon, but, like, given that Noelle Stevenson invented some of them, it's pretty close. There's a a non-binary child of Adora and Catra named Finn. And there's also a pretty popular um, child of, let's see, Scorpia and Perfuma and then Bo and Glimmer. But I've seen some other crazy ones, too. Like, I've seen multiple... Entrapta and Hordak kids like wow very yeah very cool looking I love on one hand I love that this is what the fandom is doing I love that they're sort of taking the end of season five and turning it into you know what happens next and that Noelle and company really seem to encourage it and are actually participating Noelle even has a fan fiction out there that you can read on AO3 supposedly wink wink um but Everyone pairing off and making babies is, like, not exactly my cup of tea. So I just, I'm giving it a shout out and saying that I think it's cute. I probably won't be drawing any of those particular pictures anytime soon. <laughs> okay, but point of order, do you draw other pictures? Yes. Okay, fair enough. I'm wrong. Now you don't get to look at them. <laughs> oh. Well, I feel like I've known you long enough that I probably should have seen some by now, but, you know, that's okay. I'll I'll bring my sketchbook the next time we're allowed to record in person. Who knows when that will be? Anyway, um, I guess kind of on that topic, are you a fan of Scorpia and uh, Perfuma as a pair in this episode? Because this is the first time I think we really start to see that as a possibility. Yeah, well, okay. I don't think that this is romantic, really. I, I, I straight up don't. I know I say that a lot, but... I, we we already see Perfuma coupled with somebody, and I think Scorpia is just so jazzed to have a friend, and Perfuma is so jazzed to have a project. Uh, but I love that Perfuma has made it a project to self-actualize Scorpia. 
I think it is so sweet. I, I wrote down this line. You should do things not because you're good at them, but because they're going to make you happy. And I, oh man, that is, that is too good. There's also a really great, um, it reminds me of a classic Simpsons bit where Perfuma's like giving Scorpio these like self-actualizing things to say like, I'm good enough. I can do this. And Scorpio goes, you're good enough. You can do this. <laughs> and it's absolutely the only who can prevent forest fires. You selected you referring to me. That is incorrect. The correct <laughs> answer is you. Uh, 20 seasons of Simpsons ago. Okay, but for real, isn't it weird that, like, Simpsons is such a part of our cultural heritage, and not heritage, such a part of our cultural background, and yet most people could not talk intelligently about it from, like, anything but the first 10 years of the show, and it's been on for 30 years? Right, I mean, I agree with that. I couldn't tell you what they've been doing in the last decade, but also that reference you just made did not leave my brain. It was baked in there, and I identified it immediately. Exactly. I probably haven't seen that episode in like 25 years or so, And but here we are. Anyway, I love Scorpia Perfuma as a pair. I think, um, you know, Perfuma tends to rub up against other characters she's paired with in, like, ways that get on their nerves, especially like Mermista, and I think these two are just perfectly bright together. Yeah, the first time I watched this, I fully admit I didn't see it as romantic, and I think the reason is because I was remembering a scene from Sailor Moon, the anime, in which Sailor Jupiter and Sailor Mercury danced together. Uh, Jupiter is a very tall and strong kind of Scorpio-like character, and was lamenting that men were intimidated by her and didn't never asked her to dance. And so Mercury asked her and they danced together and they were doing like adorable lifts. And I just thought, you know, like, it's fine to have friends who you say you love and you're sort of physically intimate with. And I like seeing friendships like that. But now knowing that there's a bunch of fan art out there about them having kids... I totally support a romantic read on this episode, too. I think um, they'd make a great pair that way. It's kind of whatever you want. Yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. I just I, I hesitate to read romance into every pairing. I To me, Perfuma and Scorpio are just so sweet. And, like, I'm not saying that it couldn't develop, but to me this is just, like, one friend really trying to help another, like, find herself. Because also I know we talk about, like, people not being in a space to be in relationships and i definitely think that's true of scorpia right now she's like just coming out of her shell it's it's beautiful well you could say that about a lot of characters in this show right now that like they're in essentially active wartime and is it really quote unquote a good time for anyone and so maybe when we talk about ships we're not necessarily even talking about what we see on the screen right now but what could happen down the road? And maybe maybe I see this episode as a really intimate and special friendship, but maybe down the road it could be more than that too. I'm very I'm becoming very biased by what the fan community has decided. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, another thing I like about Scorpion and Perfuma is they get uh, they get like characters to be in this underwater grotto. And something I learned from uh, my birthday match game that I didn't know is that their, their alias names come from the back of the uh, masters of the universe, classic figure bios, the ones <laughs> where we talk about like Hordak is named Hector. So Scorpio's name is Linda Doreen, which she digs and Perfuma's name is Tara. I don't want to be overly harsh <laughs> on the fact that, these names exist, but I think this is a great, great use of them in the fandom, in, in, in the narrative. Well, what's wild about those names, right? I guess I guess the implication is that everyone in the Rebellion is sort of using a, maybe an alias or a secret identity. Yeah. Which it pushes to make more sense of like double trouble is not actually a person's name, or Seahawk is not actually a person's name. Here's what their names really are. But Linda Dareem does not sound like a real name either, so are you really fixing any of your problems when you when you coin these things? Right. I, I just think, like, it's, it's like fantasy parable. Like, why? I don't know. 
to me when you, like Hordak is a fine name, and then when you call him Prince Hector, it's like, well, I mean, I guess, but I it doesn't help me understand anything about him that he has like a quote more real name. And you're right, Linda Dareem is like, like that's a porn star name. Were the bios? That they were given from the boxes as well, like Scorpia, Linda Doreen was a farmer with five little scorpion babies. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know, but you should read the fan continuity sometime. It's absolutely out of this world. There's something called, like, the Great Sword Wars or something. There's, like, three of them. Uh, basically, they took all of their toys and, like, made a Toy Story out of them, and it, man... It's crazy, man. <laughs> anyway. Man, the Sword Wars, that's just the plot of Kingdom Hearts. Oh, what, what the... F- no, trust me, it's way more comprehensible than Kingdom Hearts. Fair. Most things are. Most things are. No one at the soiree can know we're there, so I've assigned everyone undercover aliases. <sighs> Scorpia, you're Linda Dareem, a farmer and mother to five little scorpions. <laughs> Linda Dareem? I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not exactly great at lying or pretending or blending in. I mean, I'm just the muscle, not a spy. Nonsense, Linda. You were born for this role. Perfuma, you're Tara, a blacksmith. Ooh, I love it. What if Tara has an unmatched skill at cards and wears an eye patch and has a dark checkered past and an evil twin? Ooh, I can play the evil twin. Keep it simple, Tara. <laughs> Okay. One more thing I really love about Perfuma in this episode is that she apparently has drum circles and she invites Peekaboo and he doesn't come. And I just wonder how long that list is. She seems very frustrated about like, I just don't know how many drums to bring. And I just think maybe a lot of people are turning her down and I really felt for her. It, you know, it was true from her debut episode and it remains tr- true till the end. Perfuma's my favorite princess. I love her i was going to check in and see if that was still the case i think mine bounces around a lot and yours has really really stuck yeah she's the best man i i could def- i mean ooh, it's tough because i love scorpia but like perfuma's og you know i really think mine is mermista and it's so sad to me that she becomes chipped in this episode and starts just with her immense powers just wailing on her friends. She's terrifying here. But she's got that moment behind the bar where she admits that she too lit a ship on fire. Yeah. And Seahawk is so into it. And I love this pair. I'm fully on board with this pair, finally. Um, but the reason I'm, I was really endeared to Mermista in that moment is because she really turns her hand and she shows that she's enthusiastic about Seahawk, and she wants to be passionate about what he's passionate about. And even though she doesn't always express it, she's like really into him too, to the point where she just kind of snuck off and, and mimicked his like favorite hobby. It's very good. So yeah, this is another big bingo check-in. I predicted that you would come around on Seahawk. Lauren, does it happen? In this episode, it does. He gets Damn. little he gets little hearts in his eyes. I really thought it was going to be an awesome battle scene. When I saw him in the trailer for this season, like fighting with a sword, I was really waiting to be turned by a moment when he just stood up and kicked a lot of ass and really proved himself as a hero. And that's not when it happened. It happened when he said, you're everything I've ever wanted. It's freaking Bingo Square got checked, y'all. It, there it is. I knew it. I knew it would be in this episode. I absolutely knew it. The only other thing I wanted to mention in this episode, which I should have done when the directors were on the line, is is how beautiful I think it is, especially in the final battle scenes. Like, there's like some red wash when Scorpia is like kind of maxing out her powers and fighting off the chipped crowds, and it's just like a really, really good looking episode. I think it's a gorgeous set, and I think we do get to talk with Jen and Kiki about that a little bit, but just even that beginning when they pan down from the ceiling and you see the whales in the water, it's incredible. We didn't see anything like this in like season one. No, it's, it's really, really good. You know, we did that intro about classic characters, but there is actually a classic reference in this episode that I caught myself. The pianist's name is Swen, 
And that was just such a specific and unique name that I had to look it up. It had to mean something in the universe, and it is. Swen in the original She-Ra was the first mate of Seahawk. In the original 80s cartoon, Swen was a male, a guy, designed uh, kind of after Smee, like from the Disney yeah. Peter Pan. And he was kind of trying to be a conscience for Seahawk, like... Don't be such a don't be such a villainous pirate jerk, Seahawk. Be a better guy. Uh, and so I don't think the characters are connected at all, but I, I'm sure the name was chosen as a throwback. I'm pretty sure Swan was the one who had the uh, crush on Madame Raz that I joked about, where Lucky had that more. Oh, the, they talk about oh, let, we could take a walk together or something. Oh yeah, yeah. Is uh back when you hated Seahawk, remember? Back when I hated Seahawk, it feels so long ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, me liking modern Seahawk does not excuse 80s Seahawk. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> uh, one last thing we have to mention is that we do get to see Scorpia sing. And it's just a sweet moment. Again, it's very anime to sort of drop everything and have this confidence building musical number. But if you say it's a Bond throwback... Like Bond always has a theme song as well, so it's it might. Do you feel like it's sort of a Bond anthem? Um, kind of. I I thought of this more, yeah, in in the anime style. Honestly, what it most reminded me of is the episode of Justice League Unlimited where Batman has to sing a song in a cabaret to get Cersei to um, uncurse Wonder Woman, uh, and he sings "Am I Blue." It is very very good. I don't think I've seen that one. I, oh, it's so funny. The voice acting of this song by Lauren Ash, who I assume does the singing, was a very tactful. I feel like it's a little bit goofier at the beginning, but then by the last couple bars, she is just actually belting. She is actually showing those singing chops. And so Lauren Ash got to do both comedy and like actual vocal impressiveness as well. I want something from you that's very precious. Something you've worked very hard to conceal. Something when gone, you can never regain. Something so shattering. Am I blue? Am I blue? Ain't these tears in my eyes telling you? Oh, speaking of our notes, we got uh, a just a bit of fan mail from Sean Montgomery, who pointed out that in Save the Cat, that that episode moment where Glimmer was experiencing some some trauma as she entered her old uh, like space of captivity that was supposed to be a longer scene after we recorded that episode an extended sort of um animatic came out showing more of that content so y'all at home that that scene with glimmer experiencing her trauma was supposed to be longer and it's it's out there now you can see it that's really neat uh we also got a letter from a really kind person named amy grace who's who titled the the email save the lisa frank cat poster um just complimenting us on our comedy which i don't want to toot our horns but that was so nice to read because i probably said before i always wished i could be scott ackerman and i mean i'm no scott ackerman but it's really nice to hear that people think that we're funny sometimes because i always do try to inject a little bit of comedy into the editing and the pacing of the show so that's really nice i'm glad people are enjoying that i uh, <laughs> i wrote down a bunch of letters that i wanted to talk about this episode to get some of the mailbag kind of gone through and i definitely didn't include the one where like the nice person said we were funny so <laughs> way to go eric way to put that one on the top of the pile oh thank you, know, you amy well so but, and, i mean also we should probably say on mike that like there's a lot of letters we haven't written back to yet but also we're going to uh We've got plans. 
you know, we're not going to forget y'all. It's just we've had a lot to cover and there's been a lot going on. So, yes, um, we have had an unprecedented amount of emails and tweets and Facebook messages. We used to really push ourselves to respond to every single one. And there's so much going on in the world and there's so many more letters than usual. I guess now I'm tooting our horn that we just we've kind of fallen off the the horse on that one. But we're going to try to incorporate a lot of these letters later on. We actually got a suggestion from uh, a writer named Avery saying that maybe we could do an episode where we talk about the impact that Shira and our podcast has had on the fans and on ourselves. And I think we'll touch on on some of the letters in that way at the end, sort of in more of a recap way. Yeah. But I think for now, what we're going to do is go to part one of our interview with directors Jen Bennett and Kiki Manrique. All right, everybody. So uh, I'm sure we have mentioned this in the top part of the episode, which we probably won't record for weeks. But uh, I'm going to guess that we have teased that we have a really cool uh, set of guests coming up. So this is the first time we have had more than one guest since uh, we were doing shows about the filmation era we are fortunate enough to be joined today by two episode directors from she-ra and the princesses of power and as it happens uh they directed uh each one of them directed one of our next two episodes that we have to cover so we're going to split this interview into two parts and you'll hear it over the next couple weeks so i think that's fun so everybody please welcome to the show today uh the director of perils of peekaboo kiki manrique and the director of Shot in the Dark, Jen Bennett. Woohoo! Welcome! <laughs> so we usually start with kind of broader general questions. So uh, I got to ask, because it's our tradition, Lauren, I was so tempted right now to ask how much math do they use in their jobs. I haven't said that oh, in like no. a year. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> That's my dumb bit question. Um, did you have any familiarity with the Shira property coming in? Uh, I did not. Um, or I did, but only in the sense that uh, Shira is such a part of popular culture as a, as an icon. Um, so I knew that Shira existed. I knew that it was a show, but I didn't know. I hadn't watched it as a kid. It, I just missed it growing up. Um, so yeah, when I found out that Noelle was doing a Shira show, I was like, "That's a magical woman. I know that much." And it's got <laughs> action probably because there's swords involved. I remember that. I want to be on that, whatever that is. <laughs> Is that a genre? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Oh, no, no. Uh, the, I was just going to say, same with me. Um, no, I really wasn't familiar with the property before, but um, I think both Jen and I have worked on a lot of properties where we haven't been familiar with. Uh, we worked on a lot of comic book stuff, and I don't <laughs> think either of us were like huge into like cape superhero comics either. So it wasn't the first time. <laughs> the, uh, so... You mentioned the kind of magical woman genre. Is is that something that you find yourself drawn to, like as as fans, or is it just kind of what's happened with your career trajectories? Uh, for me, I grew up loving animation, cartoons. I love Disney movies, uh, and then I got really into anime after Sailor Moon started coming out um, on TV uh, when I was a kid, uh, and I was pretty much a full-on magical girl anime head all throughout high school and going into college. So yeah, magical women was always going to be a huge draw for me. Hell yeah. Uh, and you mentioned that you two have worked together quite a, quite a bit. Is that right? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, we, we kind of started in animation around the same time, actually, like maybe within a few months of each other. Um, our, I think our both of our first jobs was at uh, Warner Brothers Animation and working on uh, Young Justice, the the <laughs> first iteration of Young Justice. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing that. Uh, so Jen, you did Justice League versus the Elite. You worked on the art for that, which I I am a big comics dude. I don't really watch all the films, but that is a particular favorite story of mine. Uh, so that's really cool. Young Justice, really great adaptation as well. I think it moved to DC Universe for its last season, which is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. But by then you would have been on She-Ra, I'm sure, because there was like five years between seasons. Yes. Yeah, it was a, my, my first... I was doing a lot of the... I was I think at WB, Kiki and I were jumping around a lot of projects, but Young Justice Season 2 was the first season-long job that I had, and I was a revisionist on that. So, yeah, that was in back in 2011, I think. So it was it was a while ago. Gosh, yeah, right. Considering the show just wrapped. 
So yeah. were there similarities that you found between uh, working on a superhero show and, and She-Ra? I mean, obviously there's like some genre similarities, but maybe the more interesting question is like, what what were the differences for constructing the, the kind of world of She-Ra versus like a capes and tights thing? There's de- there is definitely a lot. Uh, I think both of our backgrounds in, in superhero animation and, and, and superhero storyboarding kind of informed a lot of like the technical side of what we were able to bring to Shira, like, you know, cinematography, fight choreography, um, all the characters have like their own set of powers. So um, that's not like dissimilar from, you know, superhero stuff. But I think what was like interesting and um, like what was really appealing about coming onto Shira for both of us was that like the storytelling was just like something we connected with way more than like, than like the traditional like Batman and Superman punching each other. <laughs> yeah, which is not to oversimplify that stuff, but like, uh, yeah, coming onto Shira, I think for both of us, it was the first time when like, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, when I sat down and um, I saw Noelle's Bible um, before I came onto the show. And then when I read my first script, I was like, I immediately get this. I don't need to ask questions. I don't need to kind of shift my personality or my taste to fit this because like I really love and respect uh, comic books. My best friend tried so hard to get me to read Young Justice when I was in college. And she was so mad when my first job in animation was working on Young Justice. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I learned so much while I was at WB about superhero stuff. But like reading that first Shira script, seeing the character designs, I was just like, oh, I can hit the ground running on this. Like, this is exactly my jam. This might have been something we talked to M about. I remember asking this question really recently. But both of you have backgrounds in franchises and properties that have sort of a long legacy stemming back to the 80s or in some cases with Justice League, like even sooner. There's in addition to the superhero stuff, there's Scooby-Doo and there's even, you know, Venture Brothers, which is definitely a throwback to a lot of 70s like Johnny Quest type animation. And She-Ra sort of fits the bill, too. She-Ra was also a legacy show. Do either of you have any you know, strategies or best practices at this point that you're keeping in mind, knowing that you're picking up something that already has a fan base and already has people really excited about it? Yeah, I think as a storyboard artist and as a, even as a director, an episode director, a lot of times our job is really like, how, how do we best execute the scripts that we are given and the stories that we are given? Um, and having worked primarily on franchises, it, it was really not to pass the buck at all. It was it was oftentimes the, the primary work of the writers and the show creators to kind of be like, okay, how do we pay homage? Why, how do we like uh, bring the old into the new? Um, I think for my part and for, I think uh, the part of the artists, it was just like knowing that that property exists, respecting it, respecting the audience. Um, but in terms of approaching Shira, knowing that this was also Noelle's vision of that property and so most of the questions I would have for Noelle or the writers would just be like, okay, I see what you've written in the episode. How do I best execute it uh, in a way that, you know, just executes your vision? I think that's a fascinating point because I, I don't know if I've thought of this so consciously before, but I guess something like Young Justice, like even though it does have a point of view, it, it hews pretty closely to source material. Like it's it's not like you can look at it and say exactly, oh, this is like... I think it was maybe Greg Weissman or something like this is a Greg Weissman show, you know, but with She-Ra, it is so idiosyncratically Noel's and all of yours that even though it is this established property, it has its own identity. And that's, that's really fascinating. And I don't think there's any iteration of He-Man that has come before that had such like an auteur feel to it. So mm-hmm. that's neat. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would say for Young Justice, too, because this is a point of contention between me and my friend, is because she wanted me to read the Young Justice comics so badly because it was what she'd grown up with. And then I ended up working on a Young Justice show, and she was very excited. And then she watched it, and she's like, no, that's not my that's not my Robin. I'm not interested in this show. Wow. <laughs> it was a different, uh, I think it, it was, um, shoot, it was Tim in the comics, and I think it ended up being uh, Dick in the <laughs> Young Justice animated show. <laughs> I mean, my Robin is Damien, so, you know, we, we're just oh. going to have to... <laughs> Damien Dork. Um, Little murder child. Good. It's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I'm a Grant Morrison stan. I can't help it. Um, yeah. Wow. That's that's really fascinating, though. Um, 
Good answer, guys. Thank you. <laughs> well, Perils of Peekaboo specifically is something that makes fun of, I think, some of the legacy stuff, and at least in like a loving way. The fact that like Linda, Dream, and Tara are these like action figure box names that get folded in. Um, I really appreciate how often this show is able to nod to the past and acknowledge it and honor it, but also be like, yeah, but some of this stuff was kind of stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be able to like, and I, I I, really appreciated that about the show kind of across the board, but it, it definitely applied to the source material is like, there would be stuff that would be in the script that I'd be like, what's this? Why, why is this? And they'd be like, oh, that's from the show. And then just making sure that if it was in the show, if it were in our episodes, that we were like, I don't know, I'm, I lost my train of thought. Hold on. <laughs> I, I feel you though. Like yeah. a character is literally named Double Trouble, which to me is not really a name. It's more of a concept. But we, <laughs> what we have discussed on this show are like my head canon is that maybe Double Trouble named themselves, and so that's pretty cool. But the stuff you have to be loyal to is like, well, that person's named a concept. All right, go with it. Yeah. I think it was this level of acceptance that that really made the show fun to work on because I remember when we in Double Trouble was introduced, we're just like, that's that's a that's a name, that's a name, that's a name, and then like two weeks later, we're like, oh yeah, Double Trouble is now my favorite character, and I understand exactly their motivations and what they're gonna do, and it was like just fully accepting it and uh, just treating it with just I don't know, having fun with it. Yeah, I mean, you have, like, Natasha and Spinnerella, so I, I'm like, eh, Double Trouble's not that too, not too far of a stretch. <laughs> Agree. Um, there's there's a couple of really nice throwbacks in Perils of Peekaboo. I noticed you snuck in a Hunga, the Harpy Queen from the Filmation series, in the background of the, uh, of the underwater bar. That was really cool. What? I didn't know that. Yeah, Hunga's chilling. <laughs> Wait, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That, um, that must have been Ray, uh, who was our, um, they were uh, our, like, primary, I feel like, lead designer. They took the lead on a lot of, um, a lot of the character designs. Um, but, yeah, I wonder if it was them referencing, referencing that, because I didn't know that. Yeah, in one yeah. of the first group shots, the, there's a harpy queen just chilling in the background, which I thought was so delightful. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was something that happened again and again. You'll see it in Princess Prom. You see it in other episodes where there's like a lot of crowd episodes is that Ray and the team would go in and then just throw in so many Easter eggs. And it was always so fun to see because like as directors, we're just like, okay, we have to execute what is on the, the page, make sure that we have all of the characters, we're tracking it, the acting is there, the magic is working, all of the story stuff is working. Uh, but then all of that polish and all of, I think, the shine and the really cute throwbacks are, are definitely more uh, on the design and post side. And it, so it's like a real treat to actually watch the episodes when they're finished. That's awesome that you can like still get uh, a delight out of watching something you worked on. I imagine that's got to be tough sometimes, but in something so collaborative, you know, always something to find. Yeah, it's fun. It's everybody does. I, I think that was the great thing about Shira too, is that I think and Kiki, I think we've talked about this before. A lot of times when you're doing storyboards, it can be kind of isolating. Like you're, you, you've got your stack of pages and you, you know, you have to execute it. You have to draw, you know, how many hundreds of drawings in order to execute the script, you turn it in and then you're already moving on to the next episode. So to be able to direct on this show, to, to interact with the design team, with Noel, with the writers to kind of see the episode, from the beginning um, way closer to the end than we ever have before. It was such a collaboration and it was really rewarding to be a part of. I mean, that brings up a question I probably should have asked closer to the top of this interview. And I apologize that this is like the most base level question, but I'm guessing that some listeners don't know. And in fact, I don't know that I have a full grasp as what <laughs> does a director of animation do? <laughs> We, yeah, we ask this. This is this is what we ask all of the guests with, I think, the idea that some of our listeners may uh, aspire to have jobs like yours someday. Yeah. But I mean, awesome. you know, like people think of directors as like calling action and cut and telling actors where to stand. None of which I, I mean, you could do it, but it probably wouldn't help. Right. <laughs> I think the storyboard artist would just glare at us and then go back to drawing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You want to start Kiki? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, directing for animation is interesting because it's definitely like you think of a director as being someone who's like the top boss or like someone who's like giving instructions like all the time. And it's like, you know, they're they're the ones like calling the shots and stuff. But um, directing for animation is actually like you're you're kind of a middle manager. Um the show is definitely like Noelle's vision. And then you're working with a lot really closely with the writers um, to kind of pull it off. And then um, you have your team of storyboard artists and like a lot of your job is just like making sure that they have the resources that they need, making sure that um, they are like in a place to do their work um, well and uh, efficiently and just kind of like, keeping a lot of it is like keeping the the train on the tracks which is like sometimes easier and sometimes harder um yeah depending on on the circumstances but um but yeah it's like you're definitely more of a, a facilitator and it's still a very creative job but um part, a lot a lot of it is also um is also just managing yeah and I think especially for a show that's sequential, that's a sequential narrative like this, that is like with ongoing characters, with character arcs that you're tracking between, you know, episodes and seasons, a lot of it was just like, a lot of it was communication. A lot of it was uh, Kiki and I talking to each other, um, uh, us talking to the writers uh, when we're like, oh, hey, we actually, as, as a director, I haven't seen this character before. Oh, I should talk to Kiki. It was in her previous episode. All right, let's make sure everything hooks up. Uh, and so it was, it was, um, it's a lot of it is just, I guess like the breakdown is you as directors, we get the script, we ask questions, we, uh, kind of try to foresee problems when we can, we're like, oh, well, we're going to need a lot of designs for this, or we already have the designs for this, so we can just kind of move forward with it. Uh, and then we hand that out to our storyboard artists. Our storyboard team starts to storyboard it. We'll check in with them as they storyboard, make sure that it's like staying to the show style, that they don't have any questions as they go. And then uh, I think on Shira, four weeks in, we would pitch a rough pitch where uh, it would just basically be me and Kiki uh, for our respective episodes, uh, furiously tabbing through a PDF of like all God, a thousand drawings uh, that kind of comprise the rough cut of the episode. And at that point, we kind of like, okay, that's the rough cut of the episode. We can see the story as a whole now. And then that's when we get notes from Noelle and the executives about like, we think this is working. We're confused about this. And then at that point, we work with a board artist and eventually the revisionists and our editors to kind of piece together a rough cut of the episode that uh, called an animatic that ends up getting shipped to our animation team that's out in Korea and then they actually execute it as animation. So we we uh, very rarely have the pleasure of talking to two guests at once, let alone two with the exact same job title. So would you say your directing styles differ from each other at all? And if so, how? Uh, sure, I'll take a stab at it. Um. <laughs> Uh, well, we came up kind of, we have a really, we had a really similar uh, background in, in, you know, before Shira. So I, I think that our directing styles are probably more similar than they are different. Um, and I think too, um, like directing for, uh, directing for action adventure is different than say like directing for like comedy or like sitcom. I think for Shira, like they really wanted to push everything like quite cinematic and to have it, um, you know, the scope of it feel really big, which was like a little bit of a challenge um, considering like the resources that we had. And it was like not um, like, you know, we, we were uh, uh, especially at first like a, a fairly small team um, and we, the stuff that we wanted to do with the show was like always really, really big. Um, so I think for both of us, um, I guess more than directing style, I would say that it was like sort of always about like problem solving, um, yeah. trying to like find the best, most efficient ways to tell the story, to make it feel like the scope was like huge and the stakes were really high while also keeping in mind um, like the resources that we had and, and uh, just that we were like human beings. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is that, 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 I feel like you can expand on this, Jen. <laughs> uh, well, I, don't, I, I think I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think our, our directing styles did end, up, did end up being pretty similar. Like I was on the show for about what a year I, I was on the show from the beginning and then Kiki, you came on 
um, for for like these last three seasons. I forget how they break it up. Three seasons, right? The last 26 episodes. Yeah. Um, and so that was your first time directing. And I remember you were really nervous uh, about it, but you immediately took to it. And a lot of it was we got to share an office, which was great. Um, because as Kiki said, a lot of our job was problem solving and trying to figure out, okay, if we need to execute this storyline, but we only have this many people and this much time and these designs, how can we do it in as efficient way as possible? So a lot of it was, again, just problem solving, talking to each other, talking with our teams, um, trying to be as compassionate as possible about like remembering, like he said, that we are a team of human beings making this thing and there are limits to what any one person can do with the resources <laughs> we have. Uh, and then just kind of going from there. So, uh, and again, I think that was a directing style, if you want to call it, that I think was really supported by Noel and by the writers, uh, just because it's like we wanted to make something good, but we didn't want to make it at the expense of anyone on our team, if we could help it. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple times that uh, animation directors are kind of problem solvers. Are there any particular problems or, or issues that stand out to you about either of these episodes, Perils of Peekaboo or Shot in the Dark? Kind of anything maybe really challenging or, or weird about their production? Kiki, you had an underground soiree with... Yeah. <laughs> oh, that probably was easy, right? <laughs> Definitely like sets that existed and stuff like that. Oh, so easy. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, that was definitely a thing where um, we I had a lot of discussions with Noel and with design before we even started boarding the episode about the underground grotto and what we wanted that to look like and feel like. And I think it actually lended itself really well towards um, the story and the final product, um, because what we had like initially decided is that everything would be really dark and um and so the characters in crowd shots could be in silhouette um and then maybe you wouldn't have to draw like 50 million incidentals <laughs> um so that was like a, a a part of how we were able to solve that problem and 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 yeah on the design side they totally knocked it out of the park um with that too um but yeah, then it was kind of just like making sure that for like the fight scenes at the end, especially when um, uh, Spinnerella is chipped and um, they're fighting at the camp, that we sort of cut around and we show, you know, the um, the chipped rebels like in, you know, like separately and not like all in one huge shot together all the time moving. Um, just, uh, I think, yeah, um, just like sort of choosing our shots so that... Um, so that it's not like we're showing a lot of people and a lot of effects all at once and maybe saving those shots for just like the the big moments. Yeah, I think, and for Shot in the Dark, uh, I remember, and I think this is this was um, something that occurred a lot in the these final 13 episodes is for the first time, we're, we pretty much don't go back to any previous environments, if I remember right. <laughs> There's like then, a couple scenes on the ship, but that's really it, I think. Yeah, that's about it. So there was, um, and even the ship episode, there was like, okay, now we're in the rooms. That's new. Uh, <laughs> uh, so there was like some trepidation going into this last season, but also I think like, I was joking about it with Noel. I think going into these like last 13 episodes, it was kind of like, running a marathon and you can see the end and so you're like all right we got this one last sprint let's go to space let's <laughs> go to all of these locations we'll figure it out like somehow <laughs> um so yeah for shot in the dark too that was an entirely new environment and also we were joking about it i think at outline about how it's kind of a bottle episode you know it's all in one environment and then you start to really break it down and you're like okay it's all in one brand new spooky environment that we've never seen before and it needs to be scary while still technically being one long hallway uh so it was that was another one where we like we talked a lot with design ahead of time we had a really amazing biz dev team i think i remember it was like roger and oh god i'm forgetting um i definitely talking with a lot of the biz dev team they were building sketchup models of the tower which helped us out so much, um, just like a 3D model that we could then kind of like take screen caps of and use as reference um, uh, for using, uh, setting up our shots for Shot in the Dark, which was super helpful, uh, considering there's a lot of round shapes in those towers. I got a couple of questions about episode specifics. Uh, Perils of Peekaboo, I think she has done this at least three times, but maybe four, where mid-season there's kind of a, 
a genre tribute episode uh, that ends up having a pretty like it's it's kind of light and fun like oh it's a style parody but then it ends up having a pretty grave twist at the end and that was <laughs> Mer Mysteries in season four which Jen was one of yours and now yes. Kiki you've got the this kind of like almost Bondian homage uh, here what are there I guess what are the specific challenges of doing those kind of episodes are they more fun for you do are they more of a headache for you maybe both um i i love doing them i think uh these episodes where like we used to kind of say that they're fun and games until they're not um <laughs> the, those are like always my my favorite kind of episodes to do um yeah and i think um it's always like it's always really fulfilling and like really um satisfying to work on an episode where like the writing is so well like M M wrote um Perils of Pika Blue and I think you guys um spoke with her on a on another podcast. Um but uh yeah she did like an amazing job with just like balancing the tone and I think that's something that like all of our writers really excelled at. Um it's so nice to have those moments in the episode that are light and funny and you have like Scorpia singing on a stage and, and then you have like a like full on like fire battle in the camp. Um, and uh, it, it's like ends on everyone's like um, just devastated faces, ship floating in space. I, I loved working on those types of episodes. <laughs> yeah. There's a gut punch at the end. The, I think the last shot is like a very far away shot of the ship, uh, like isolated, and it's like, oh man, I thought this episode was funny, right? Yeah. <laughs> when we were talking about like the genre style episodes, how do these ideas come up? Like, was it, is it kind of y'all sitting around in the in the room being like, it would be fun to do a Bond homage, or does it kind of come out of you see the beats of the story and then think, oh, I can overlay this genre as like an interesting creative decision, or or how does that work? Um, yeah, I think a lot of it comes from, um, like, just, like, you know, talking with the writers and then um, getting kind of, like, their what what their idea for the episode is. And a lot of the, the homage and, and what was, like, on screen is kind of, like, from the script. But then a lot of it is also design. Um, I think, yeah, like, sort of, like, the, uh, the outfits and, like, um, the the environment and stuff, um, yeah. I so, hmm. I'm trying to think of, of more that more that I can say about that. I guess um, like it's a lot of the genre stuff. A lot of the genre episodes are definitely figured out in the writers' room, um, yeah. which Kiki and I were always invited to. But really, I regret this. We sadly never really had the time to go in. Um, so they're always very open to it, but um, we were busy executing the episodes that were in production or pre-production. Uh, so I think there were definitely conversations, I think, when they were breaking seasons, uh, where they're like, hey, we're thinking about doing this kind of episode. What do you think of that? And we'd just be like, thumbs up? Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll be ready when the uh, episode comes down the shoot. Uh, I think there were a couple of instances, and I, I unfortunately can't name any, but just like in offhand conversations that Noelle or the writers would be having with the designers or the storyboard artists where they'd be like, I'd love to see an episode like this. And, and I think there were some instances where like that was a seed that bloomed in the writer's room into this like really wild, awesome episode. Uh, so it, it really was the writers that figured out the genre, but it also, they were very open to um, suggestions from the crew. This is the only episode where we, and it, it's technically not even peekaboo at all but it's the only episode where we see prince peekaboo uh do you feel like you got to have any special influence over that character and what do you enjoy about that character i i think definitely like double trouble was like a crew favorite we all really loved boarding them um and jacob's amazing um and uh yeah it was fun to it was fun to see peekaboo in this episode too um i think I feel like I didn't really have as much, um, like I would say for for Pika Blue, the the ownership for that character should go to probably Em and Noel, and then also Ray, our designer, who like did an awesome job with like their like amazing outfit, and then um, also I guess Diana, who boarded the scenes, uh, my board artist who boarded the scenes with uh, with Pika Blue. Um, I don't know, I. 
I guess that's not a very satisfying answer. (laughs) I do have sort of a a fan theory question. And if y'all can't clear this up, that's fine. But this is the second time we're just trying to get cited on Wikipedia as often as possible, (laughs) by the way. Uh, But this is the second time we see Double Trouble become a character that is not otherwise seen in the show. The other example being Flutterina. Do Flutterina and Peekaboo exist outside of this? Are they real people or did Double Trouble make them up? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> there are definitely some internal crew theories about that. <laughs> with Flutterina. Flutterina, like the, the conversations got dark in the crew. <laughs> yeah. They're like, Flutterina, she had to have existed, right? Because nobody's blinking and then like, is she dead? Is she alive? <laughs> we had that same talk here. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. My personal headcanon is that uh, both characters definitely exist or existed. Exist. They exist. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's like Double Trouble has that line where they're like, yeah, that's it's a, I don't know, it's a hermit and it's a cool story. How could I resist? I don't know where they are, but they're out there somewhere. Uh, so yeah, I, I like to, I like the idea that, I don't know, Prince Peekaboo is somewhere out in there in a cave and comes out and finds that there's a whole cabaret named after them. <laughs> yeah, I think it was definitely with within the crew, we were like, yeah, the, the Flutterina and, and, and Peekaboo are out there. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I also, I wonder what other classic Princess of Power characters Double Trouble has been masquerading as that we haven't seen. Mm-hmm. That's in the season six, right, guys? We'll, we'll see. That's the spin off show. To be continued. Thanks for listening to She Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address progressiveofpower at gmail.com or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.